0: Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Extraordinary tales from around the globe and throughout history. I'm Dan Benson. On July 4th, 1928, Alfred Lowenstein arrived at Croydon Airport in England to catch a plane across the English Channel to Brussels. In 1928 flying for the general population was still something of a novelty, but not to Lowenstein. He made this trip as a matter of routine. In fact, he flew so frequently that he had bought his own aircraft, a Dutch-built Fokker trimotor which had space to seat up to 12 passengers and was considered an airliner in its day, and an airliner was something he could easily afford. Lowenstein was a financier, ...with around 12 million pounds to his name. He was, at that time, the third richest person in the world. What became of that wealth during the following year's stock market crash... ...wouldn't concern Lowenstein because he was never getting off that plane alive. As I said before, he had made this trip multiple times, pretty much routinely... ...and despite very poor weather, not to mention that the flight was made at night... This flight was pretty much routine as well. The plane's engines didn't miss a beat, the flight was on course and everything was just tickety-boo. That is, until Lowenstein needed to use the lavatory. He went to the tiny compartment at the back of the cabin, closed the door, and was never seen or heard from again. After around ten minutes, Lowenstein's secretary, Fred Baxter, decided to check and see if he was okay... Thinking he might have travel sickness, he knocked on the toilet door but received no answer. After knocking again and still receiving no answer, he called out but was again met with silence. And after a time, the decision was made to open the door by force. But when it gave way, Baxter was astonished to discover that the cubicle was empty. Baxter informed the others and the pilot made the unusual decision to set the plane down early and chose a beach of all places just outside the city of Dunkirk instead of continuing on to an airport, which would have made more sense. The supposedly deserted beach was actually crawling with French military personnel and the plane's occupants were apprehended. When the disappearance came to light, the only explanation anyone could come up with was that maybe Lowenstein had inadvertently opened the exit door instead of the toilet and stepped out into the night sky. A very unlikely scenario for multiple reasons. Just over two weeks later, on the 19th of July, a fisherman would find Lowenstein's body in the English Channel. An autopsy was conducted that found no signs of foul play or suicide, and although Lowenstein had alcohol in his system, it was an insubstantial amount, at least by most people's standards. But Lowenstein was a teetotaler, and he never drank alcohol. An inquiry ruled Lowenstein's death as accidental, mostly due to the testimony from pilot Donald Drew and mechanic Robert Little, who maintained it was possible to accidentally open the exit hatch, but it wasn't. Tests were conducted by the British Air Ministry, and it was concluded that it would be almost impossible to fall out of the plane by accident. One of the tests involved one of the air ministry men throwing himself against the door with all his might while the plane was cruising at a 1,000 feet. Too bad for him if his theory was wrong, but the door only opened around 6 inches or 15 centimetres before the slipstream slammed the door shut again. Lowenstein, by all accounts, wasn't suicidal and was making plans for the future. And even if he was suicidal that doesn't mean he'd have had any easier time opening the door. Drew, the pilot, and Little, the mechanic, fell under suspicion given their erroneous statement about the door, but were later cleared as they were in the cockpit during the flight, which on that particular aircraft was a separate compartment, sealed off and inaccessible from the cabin. Although it has been noted that Drew lived a fairly extravagant life after this time, and rumours circulated that he had been given a payoff. Some possible scenarios for the mystery include mariticide, with Lowenstein's wife Madeline inheriting his vast fortune. It should be noted that their relationship was on the rocks and that the autopsy was a private one arranged by her. It's also worth noting she had him buried in an unmarked grave and did not attend the funeral. Another possibility put forward is business rival Henry Dreyfus, who was facing a libel suit and wished to avoid an embarrassing and potentially destructive lawsuit. There was also Albert Pam and Frederick Sarvesi, Lowenstein's partners, in International Holdings. By an odd coincidence, International Holdings stock took off shortly after Lowenstein's disappearance, thanks to a $13 million profit suddenly appearing on the books a sum that matched, oddly enough, a series of anonymous insurance policies taken out on Lowenstein's life just before he died. We may never know what happened that rainy night in the sky over the North Sea. Perhaps new evidence will come to light, but at this stage, it's likely that Alfred Lowenstein's death will forever remain an extraordinary mystery. On the 29th of November 1970, a young girl hiking through the foothills of Isdal in Norway would stumble across a dead body among some rock fragments. The discovery would spark an investigation that would take some rather extraordinary turns. The area the body was found in was nicknamed the Death Valley due to a string of hiking incidents the previous decade and also being a location where people often went to take their own lives, dating back to the Middle Ages. So police weren't initially expecting foul play. But when they arrived, it was immediately obvious that things weren't that straightforward. What had made the girl veer off and find the body in the first place was a peculiar smell, like burning, and that's what the police found a charred body, the description of which I'll spare you, but needless to say, the young girl who made the discovery had been inconsolable and would never be the same. The body was laying on its back with the front of the body and face burned beyond recognition. It was determined that the body was that of a woman and with no campfire nearby, there were questions about how she could have managed to accidentally burn herself so severely. And there were other strange things, Among the items found at the scene were an empty bottle of liqueur, two plastic water bottles, believed to have contained petrol, a plastic passport slip, rubber boots, a woolen jumper, scarf, stockings, umbrella, a purse, a matchbox, a watch, a ring and a pair of earrings. And around the body were scattered charcoal remains of what had been pieces of paper. There was also a fur hat, which would later be found to have traces of petrol on it. Curiously, all the items of clothing had had the labels removed. In fact, all the items present had had any identifying marks removed. This left police at a great disadvantage in their attempts to identify the woman. They could do little but sift through missing persons reports and hope for a call from someone reporting a missing person that fit the description. It would be three days later when two suitcases believed to belong to the woman were found at Bergen Railway Station. The suitcases, as you might guess, were full of clothes, but quite stylish clothes, and along with that, very expensive makeup, and some betnovate eczema cream. Nothing terribly unusual in that, but from here it starts to get a bit odd. There were wigs of various descriptions, sums of money from various different countries, including five 100 Deutschmark notes in the lining of one of the suitcases, and most interestingly... A pair of non-prescription glasses, that is to say, the lenses were just window glass. The type you might wear to a costume party, or as part of a disguise. There were also sunglasses from which they were able to get a partial fingerprint, which matched the body. At least they had the right person, but again, all labels and identifying marks had been removed. Betnovate was a prescription cream. I know this because I used to have eczema and used it myself, but the names of the woman and the doctor who prescribed it were scrubbed off the packaging. Strange to say the least, but things were about to get stranger. Also among the items in the suitcases was a notebook containing some kind of alphanumeric code, which once cracked would turn out to be dates and places the woman had visited. Investigators were to visit these locations and the code was seemingly confirmed with handwritten check-in forms, all with the same handwriting, filled out in either German or French. The woman had travelled around Norway and Europe using at least eight different aliases with matching passports, and although her birthdate, occupation and other details changed, she consistently gave her nationality as Belgian. When staying at various hotels in Bergen itself, staff claimed that she frequently changed rooms. While all this was going on, an autopsy had been conducted, and it was determined the woman had died from a combination of barbiturate overdose and carbon monoxide poisoning, indicating she was still alive when she was burned. Oddly, and despite all the apparent cloak and dagger, police determined she had most likely committed suicide. With 50-plus undigested sedative tablets found in her stomach, police believed it was almost impossible to force somebody to swallow such a large number of pills. But rumours were going in another direction. The woman had used aliases, fake passports, disguises, and had had anything that might reveal her identity removed or destroyed, including her own face. People, including the media, thought she was a spy. This theory would later be bolstered by declassified records from the Norwegian Armed Forces that showed the woman's movements corresponded with top-secret trials of a new missile called the Penguin. Many years later, in 2005, a Bergen resident told a local newspaper he had been hiking in the area where the body was found in 1970 and he had seen her. He thought it was odd that she was dressed in light city clothes, but what also seemed strange was that there were two men in coats walking some distance behind her. She seemed nervous and looked like she was about to say something to him, but then changed her mind, and he wondered if she was being followed. He reported this to the police, but it was not recorded at the time. The day of his sighting of the woman was five days before the body was discovered. Conversely, when the body was discovered, the time of death was determined to have been around five days earlier. On February 5, 1971, the woman was buried in an unmarked grave in Bergen. A Catholic service was decided upon because she had used the names of saints for some of her aliases. She was buried in a zinc coffin in case she would one day need to be exhumed for either further investigation or because family members came forward to collect her, but nobody ever did. And at the time of this recording in 2022, the curious case of what would become known as the Isdal Woman remains an extraordinary mystery. been listening to mr benson's extraordinarium created researched and hosted by me dan benson if you enjoyed the show hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as i uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history till next time peace love light take care catch ya